crime scene photos were bloody, very, very bloody. The crime scene was bloody. The person who committed those murders was covered in blood. Every expert that I've talked to said there's no way that that person or persons was not covered in blood. That shirt was covered in blood. In my opinion, the killer wore that shirt. When this thing goes to court and trial, I have one shot and one opportunity to be not guilty or I go to prison in death row. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the reality of it. We have busted alibis. We have caught people in lies. This is just insane because everybody's pointing the finger at somebody else. You just don't hear every day walking in somebody's house, they're going to take the plastic out and pop somebody. So he could get the execution date pretty much any day? Yeah. There's no impediment. This is Cousins by Blood. Episode 30, The Bloody Shirt. This episode begins the second half of season three, the final season of Cousins by Blood. And this feels like a good time to do a quick recap of the timeline for the main days of focus in this case. There are six days to keep in mind. It starts on November 2nd, 2000. That night, the night that either the pizza man showed up at Ivan's apartment and threatened him because James owed a lot of money, and then this pizza man fired a bullet into their apartment wall, or the night that Ivan fired the bullet into the wall during an argument with Amy. November 3rd, the night of Ivan's midnight visit to James and Amy Kitchen's house. When Ivan said he went over to warn James about the pizza man and the money that was owed. But then you have Amy's account that stated it was during this midnight visit that Ivan committed the murders. Later that night, Ivan drove Amy Kitchen's Mercedes and James Corvette as Ivan and his Amy party hopped until the morning hours of the 4th. Sometime around or before noon on November 4th, they left Dallas heading to Arkansas It was around an eight-hour drive for a pre-planned trip to visit Amy's mom and stepdad. From November 4th to the 7th, Ivan and Amy were in Arkansas. Meanwhile, back in Dallas on November 5th, the police found James Corvette parked in Ivan and Amy's apartment complex parking lot. November 6th, was the day that Sylvia and Ivan's Aunt Penny went over to Carlo's house to get her Mustang back from Anthony. And while there, Detective Wynn stopped by too. Carlos had Ivan on speakerphone and everyone overheard Ivan telling Carlos the pizza man story. After which, Detective Wynn took the four down to the police station to take their statements. The next day, November 7th, the police had a search warrant for Ivan and Amy's apartment. They found the bloody jeans and the socks in the trash can with the blood matching that of the victims. They found a box of bullets in Ivan's closet, the same caliber as the murder weapon. Also in Ivan's shoe in the closet, they found keys belonging to James and Amy Kitchen. That same day, Ivan and Amy Betcher headed back to Dallas from Arkansas. They went over to Tawny's apartment and spent the night there. The next morning, November 8th, Tawny went to work and Ivan met his mother to get with a lawyer to all go meet with Detective Wynn. But Ivan got arrested on the way to the lawyer's office. Later in the afternoon, Ivan called Amy and Tawny and let them know he was arrested. Tawny drove Amy to the airport to fly back to Arkansas. But before getting on the plane, 
Amy told Tawny to look around her apartment and make sure Ivan didn't leave anything. When Tawny got back to her apartment, she flipped up the couch cushion and found the murder weapon. November 2nd to November 8th, 2000. Those are the main six days in our timeline. Let's continue. As the scales of justice in this case continue to tilt back and forth for Ivan's guilt or innocence, in this episode, we'll weigh additional evidence that may show Ivan's involvement in the crime and perhaps additional motivation for the murders. As you heard last episode, Ryan stated that he saw a man driving a box-style Lincoln, fitting the description of Ivan's pizza man. But there was testimony presented at trial to try to dismiss Ivan's pizza man story. And lend credence to Amy's story that Ivan fired the gun at her that night in the apartment. You see, Ivan and Amy's apartment building in Pear Ridge was a fourplex. Two apartments on the bottom, two on the top. Ivan and Amy's apartment was on the bottom left, and their neighbor on the top left, directly above their apartment, testified at Ivan's trial. The time in question was the evening of November 2nd, the night before Ivan's midnight visit to James' house. On November 2nd, that evening, both Ivan and Amy agreed they got into an argument around midnight. Neither could really give an answer as to why, however. But both Ivan and Amy agreed that Ivan slammed an apartment door on Amy's hand. But did Ivan have a gun in the apartment? And did Ivan fire that gun into the wall that night? In order to answer that, the prosecution called Michael Gatchlan, the upstairs neighbor, to the witness stand. At the time, he was in his mid-30s. About what time did you get home that night? I don't remember. Was it before midnight? Yes. Where in your apartment did you sleep? I slept in the living room. Why is that? It was just more comfortable for my back. Around midnight, were you asleep around midnight that Thursday night? I believe I was. Did you sleep through the night? No. Why is that? I heard a loud noise and it woke me up. Could you tell me where it was coming from? It sounded like it was coming from down below. After you heard that loud noise, do you remember what happened next? Or what you heard next? I heard some arguing. Could you identify the voices? Not specifically, but I can kind of tell it sounded like there was at least one male and one female. Could you make out anything that they were saying? Not in general. I thought I heard the female say I'm bleeding. Do you recall hearing anything else? Not specifically, just raised voices. A little bit of, I think the female was crying. Did it sound like an argument to you? Yes. Did you hear anything else after this? I'm pretty sure I heard a door slam. The loud sound that you heard Could you tell what kind of sound it was? Not with any certainty. Did it sound like a gunshot? The defense objected to that, saying it was leading, to which the judge sustained and asked the jury to disregard that question. What did it sound like? A couple of things crossed my mind. One was just, they just moved in. I thought maybe something fell over and just hit the floor in such a way. 
and another one that briefly crossed my mind that it could have been a gunshot. Did you call the police? No. Why? They were new neighbors. This was the first time that it happened and I wasn't for sure what was going on down below and they deserved their privacy. There was just no track record of this being an ongoing thing. What you thought was an argument, did it end a little while later? At some point, I either fell asleep or it just ended. I don't remember. Did you ever have an opportunity after this to meet your neighbors? No. Based on that trial testimony, it could be argued that the loud sound that the neighbor heard was a gunshot. The gunshot. The gunshot that proves that Ivan had a gun. And Ivan fired that gun at Amy. The gunshot that proves the pizza man doesn't exist. And if Ivan lied about the pizza man, he lied about the reason he went over to James and Amy Kitchen's house that night. He wouldn't have gone over to warn them about a made-up pizza man. That gunshot proves Ivan had a gun, and Ivan went over there to kill them. I asked Ivan if that wasn't a gunshot, what was it? And he wrote me this in a letter. Well, the noise he heard was either the front or patio door being slammed. With him sleeping in his living room, either one of these doors slamming would have woken him up. Based on that trial testimony, it could also be argued that the loud sound was not a gunshot. A gunshot in the quiet of the night, just a few feet below the upstairs neighbor, is going to be pretty loud and fairly distinct. However, again, when asked, What did it sound like? He testified. A couple of things crossed my mind. One was just, they just moved in. I thought maybe something fell over and just hit the floor in such a way. And another one that briefly crossed my mind, that it could have been a gunshot. The first thing out of his mouth was that something hit the floor. We know what the prosecution wanted him to say, but does his hesitancy in saying gunshot illustrate that more than likely there was no gunshot? And if a gun wasn't fired, then Amy was lying about Ivan shooting at her. So was Amy lying about Ivan even having a gun? Well, somebody fired a shot into the wall. If it wasn't Ivan around midnight, was it the pizza man a few hours earlier? To an extent, this case hinges on what the upstairs neighbor heard around midnight. Was it a gunshot or not? I wanted any more information I could get on the matter. And although I reached out to the upstairs neighbor, Michael, multiple times, he never responded. However, Ivan and Amy's other neighbor, Stephen, did. You'll be hearing more from Stephen in an upcoming episode. But like I said, Ivan and Amy's apartment building was in a fourplex, and this guy, Stephen, lived Picture it in your mind, just draw a square, right? Make it into quarters, so you have four squares inside of one. They lived in the bottom left, I lived in the top right. Yeah, so my stairs, the stairs uh, went up to the right of their apartment, straight up to mine. So Stephen was the upstairs neighbor across from Michael, whose testimony you just heard. As a matter of fact, the uh, police detective asked me if I heard shots. And I said, no. He says, well, he tried taking shots at Amy in the, in the apartment. And I said, I didn't hear it. 
how were those units constructed? Do you think that if a gun was fired in the apartment, you would have heard it? More than likely, I, I shoot guns and I would have recognized what it was. I've been around guns all my life. I would have recognized a gunshot, especially mm. one that was, you know, close by. Um, I thought it was a, a small caliber gun, was it not like a 32 or something like that? It was a 380. It was a 380, okay. Well, that would have, that would have popped, but I, I didn't hear it. You know, I could have been asleep. I could have had music on. And that or, I, or I may yeah. not have been home. Right. I may have not uh, been and home. You don't, and you don't really even recall, of course, what you were up to that Thursday before. I hate to say it, my friend, I do not. So this neighbor thinks he would have heard and recognized a gunshot in his unit. But this is all speculation. We don't know if he was home. If the defense wanted to raise some reasonable doubt, they could have pinned this neighbor down 20 years ago and figured out if he was home or not and tested decibel levels in the surrounding apartments to see how loud a gunshot would have been coming from Ivan and Amy's apartment. But let's assume this apartment fourplex was the standard construction of every other typical apartment building. Have you lived in an apartment with a neighbor underneath? If a gun was fired directly under you while you were sleeping on the couch, do you think you'd be able to recognize the difference between a gunshot and something falling on the floor? But again, this is only speculation. All we have to go on is when the prosecution asked. The loud sound that you heard, could you tell what kind of sound it was? The neighbor directly upstairs from Ivan and Amy testified. Not with any certainty. So while it's a super compelling question, was it a gunshot or not? The fact is, we just don't know. If the neighbor couldn't say with any certainty at trial 20 years ago, there's no way for us to know with any certainty today. And while the upstairs neighbor might not have tipped the scale one way or another, there is some weight to this next component, which does seem to be troublesome for Ivan's innocence claim and could provide an aspect the state's case was thin on. Motive. Ivan needing money. This was only touched on at trial. You'll remember in episode 26, this was a portion of Frank Perez's trial testimony. During those three weeks, did the defendant call the mortgage business looking for James? Several times. The last couple of days that James was alive, do you recall the defendant calling the office? Yes, ma'am. Did you talk to the defendant before you turned the phone over to James? When James didn't talk to him, yeah. Uh, there was times that he called and James was there, but he told me he didn't want to talk to him. Did he say why he didn't want to talk to him? It was an ongoing joke because just a pain and he wanted money. Do you know how much money the defendant was wanting? 20000 Why was he calling James for that money? James was probably the only one that he knew that had that kind of cash. Did James give it to him? No. Did he want to give it to him? No, ma'am. I believe this was the only time this $20,000 came up at trial. However, over the course of my investigation, this account of Ivan wanting or needing $20,000 from James came up again. James' sister let me know that her aunt heard about this $20,000 from her father. So this was a discussion between James' aunt and James' grandfather sometime after James' murder. This was a text sent by James' aunt detailing what she recalled. It's being read by an actor. Not really sure what brought on our conversation between Manuel and myself. Manuel is James' grandfather. Maybe because I had a personal conversation with him about an issue, but I remember Manuel saying that several people used to talk to him or ask for advice. He said that James also used to confide in him and would ask for advice here and there on different issues regarding bills and some personal. Then he brought James up. Manuel bragged about James, how, for his age, 
He has always worked very hard to get what he wanted and seemed to have it together. Sometimes working two jobs to save money, like when he bought his first truck when he was a kid. He did it on his own, he said by mowing lawns. James didn't come to us asking for money, but people would go to him for money and laughed when he said that James would charge interest if someone borrowed from him, even to his own mother. He said that James had spoken to him one day about Ivan needing another large loan a couple of weeks or so later, after already loaning him the $20,000. Manuel said that at first, James didn't want to. James told Manuel that Ivan was upset and desperate for it. Manuel said that after their conversation he had with James, that James had ended up deciding to loan him the money, even though he wasn't sure how Ivan planned on paying him back because he didn't make that kind of money. But it didn't get to that point. Manuel never said to me what Ivan needed the money for. Not sure if he knew or not, but never told me. It's sad that James would do anything for anyone that needed help, and this happens to him. So from that text, it sounds like Manuel was saying that James had already loaned Ivan the 20000 and a few weeks later, Ivan was coming back to James for more. But according to Manuel, James had decided to loan Ivan more money. But Ivan killed James before getting the loan. This information never came up at trial, and neither did this. Another source told me a similar story. I spoke with Mark Kitchen's now ex-wife. Remember, Mark is Amy Kitchen's brother. The now ex-wife was Mark's current wife at the time of the murders. Her name was on the police report when she and Mark met the detectives back over at James and Amy's house about a week after the murders. I believe this to be the time in which Mark handed the Rolex over to the police. Mark Kitchen's ex-wife didn't remember anything about the Rolex, but she did tell me about her last encounter with Amy Kitchen. It was about two weeks before the murders. She said that they were all over at Mark and Amy's mom's house. She was out on the patio with Amy. Amy was showing her the engagement ring. And somehow Ivan's name got brought up. Mark Kitchen's ex-wife told me that Amy told her that Ivan had come around asking James for money. But she said that James told Ivan he couldn't keep lending him money because he had just gotten engaged and he was saving up for their wedding and honeymoon. Amy told her that after James had told Ivan he was essentially cutting him off, Ivan got very upset. So I asked Ivan what was the deal with his 20,000 and was he asking James to loan him money shortly before the murders? He told me that one time he did ask and James did loan him money. However, he said it was in 1998 or 99. He said he needed to make another monthly payment on the Bow Courthouse so he could extend 30 days and it didn't go into foreclosure before Carlos bought it. Ivan said James lent him about $2,300 for that, but Ivan paid him back. When I told Ivan what James and Amy had been telling others before their murders, Ivan just said that did not happen. He said at no time in 2000 did he ever ask James for money. And yet, according to two different witnesses, James and Amy were telling people that Ivan came to James for money right before the murders. And if Ivan's lying about the money, you would have to assume Ivan's lying about his innocence. This just does not bode well for Ivan. And at points like this, sometimes I would call Greg and see what he thinks. 
yeah, that's the first I've ever heard of $20,000. Greg's the guy in the opening sequence that says, This is just insane because everybody's pointing the finger at somebody else. Greg went to school with Ivan, but lost touch after high school. Of course, he heard about what happened with the murders in 2000, but he didn't write Ivan for the first time until 2009. And a lot of people ask, why didn't you contact your friend? Why did it take so long? Whether the person's innocent or guilty, reaching out to somebody that's in uh, a maximum security prison, especially a death row situation, is not the easiest thing in the world to do. But finally, in 2009, I ended up writing him and, and going to visit him in Livingston, Texas, which is where every male death row prisoner is held in Texas. But to uh, to have a close personal friend that is in that situation is, is hard to deal with, it's hard to reason with, it's hard to make sense of. So, you know, really for the last 10 years or so. Greg has been Ivan's only friend the only one that's written him consistently and gone to see him. Greg was one of the first people I spoke to about this case. And now we've been talking for about two and a half years. And I've tried to be as impartial, and it's hard to be impartial. But I've, I've listened to him. I've looked at everything over the last 10 years. The one thing I can say is the case doesn't make much sense. Greg knows this case, and he knows Ivan. So when new information comes to light, I'll give Greg a call to see if he's ever heard anything about it. Yeah, that's the first I've ever heard of $20,000. So what they're saying is that Ivan tried to borrow twenty grand. He didn't get the twenty grand, and then he wouldn't kill James for the twenty grand. Is that the theory now? It was either that James loaned him twenty grand, and now Ivan needed more money. And right. when James loaned him that, if we back up for a second. As far as okay, let's let's look at this twenty thousand. What what did he need it for? What did he use it for? You know, obviously he was living in a bare bones apartment, driving a Honda Accord, working two jobs. He didn't have a big overhead at the time. He wasn't living in the big house. He wasn't driving an expensive car. He didn't have a boat. All that stuff was long gone. You know, he's driving a, a basic car, living in a basic house with a basic chick. Right. I'm just thinking but, if, if the, you know, guy as flashy as Ivan was in the way everybody portrays him to be, that if he got his hands on some cash, you would think there would be something to go along with his cash instead of just hiding it for later. And this money was never recovered. And well, if he did make yeah. a purchase or deposit that money in the bank, it had to be declared. It's over 10 grand. It sounds like it would have had to have been some debt that Ivan owed that he needed. You know. But what debt, man? What debt? I mean, I'm just trying to think, you know? Um, I don't know. And if I thought there was some debt, I would definitely, oh, yeah, well, what about this? What about that? But like I said, I just, that's a lot of debt for, for some dude that's just kind of club hopping and recreationally using narcotics, you know, and there's no sign of any type of like narcotics dealings on Ivan's side of things. You know, yep. run up a 20 grand drug debt with these low, low time street dealers that just seems a little far-fetched if he's just nickel and diamond it they might let him go up to a thousand or something they're not giving him right money. right right you know why why didn't this 20 grand come up 20 years ago i'm not saying it didn't happen but as far as the the need to to get a hold of a bunch of cash unless maybe it's james saying oh yeah i've got to get this money to ivan and it wasn't going to Ivan, it was going somewhere else. The whole truth and nothing but the truth is never going to come out in this thing, you know that. Now granted, Greg said it was hard for him to be impartial because of his ongoing friendship with Ivan, but he brings up an interesting question. Why would Ivan have needed the 20000 and then apparently more money after that? Now, when Frank Perez was on the witness stand, he was asked that question, and he said... He wanted money to go into a business for himself. What kind of business? Mortgage. Was it to compete with James's business? Well, no. I think his intention was to branch out. And open up a branch of James's? That's what I assumed. But Ivan said that was false. 
he didn't have any intention of opening another mortgage branch for himself or James. He said that requires a lot more than $20,000 and responsibilities that he had no interest in tackling. Ivan told me he was completely content working at Countrywide Home Loans, where he could make a decent living without being bogged down with the responsibilities. So, Ivan needing the money to open up a mortgage business theory doesn't seem to make much sense. If Ivan needed money so badly, $20,000, as of now, it's still a mystery what he could have possibly needed it for. And the last piece of evidence to discuss this episode, the bloody shirt. And this bloody shirt story is bizarre on multiple levels. It does not tie up into a nice, neat bow. And after you hear all the details, you'll be more puzzled than when you started. I warn you of that up front. The story starts with Sylvia. What um, can you tell me about this shirt, the bloody shirt? Yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What um, can you tell me about this shirt, the bloody shirt? Yeah. I was washing the clothes after I picked up uh, Ivan's belongings. I put everything in black plastic bags. Well, I'd had to move Eric out of his apartment in Plano after when he found out that Ivan had been arrested, he just he just shut down. He couldn't even work. You'll remember Eric is Ivan's younger brother. He was about 20 at the time of the murders. So I had to go and uh, get all his things out of the apartment, and my mother and I cleaned his apartment and bagged everything up. And So I had all these bags in my garage with full of clothes that had to be washed. And I run across this shirt, and I don't know if I'm in Ivan's bag or if I'm in Eric's bag. When did you go through that bag? Probably a week. A week after Ivan was arrested? Uh-huh. After he was arrested. It looked like chocolate was on it, like chocolate milk had been spilled on the front part of the shirt. And so mm-hmm. I didn't wash it. I just folded it up and put it in, in a large gallon plastic Ziploc. Mm-hmm. So did you feel so that I, it could have been blood or? I didn't know if, if I needed to hand that over to the attorneys. I didn't know if I handed it over to the attorneys and it was James Blood, if it was going to incriminate Ivan. I didn't know. I had no idea, Matt. But you just wanted to keep it. Just uh... in case it exonerated him. How would it it have exonerated him if he had the bloody shirt? Because somebody would have had to come into the apartment and leave that shirt there. The police took all the evidence that they they went through the whole apartment and ransacked it. They found the bullets on the top shelf. You'll remember the police found a box of 380 caliber bullets on the top shelf of Ivan's closet and James and Amy Kitchen's car keys in a shoe in the closet. So you would think, had the bloody shirt been in Ivan's closet, they would have found it. So Sylvia presumed the shirt must have come from Eric's closet. At the time, Eric had an apartment about three miles away from Ivan and Amy's apartment. 
so yeah, the the bloody shirt that was with other items, other mm-hmm. clothes, in the trash bag. Mhm. And did what did Eric say about the shirt? Did he ever? See, I, I didn't know if I, if uh, if I should wash it or if I should keep it, and and uh, that's why I asked him, do you own that kind of a shirt? Because I thought, well, maybe it's Eric's shirt, and he just spilled something on it at work. But when Ivan said you know, he didn't have a shirt like that, I just left it alone. You eventually gave the shirt to Tammy? Mm-hmm. I think she said, I need you to overnight it to me. I said, no, I don't want it getting lost. I, you know, I'll drive it over there to you. And that was the first time I ever met Tammy. Tammy got this shirt from Sylvia seven years after the murders. In 2007, the year Tammy married Ivan. And Tammy felt like this was a key piece of evidence that could have possibly proven her husband Ivan's innocence. So she was not happy when it showed up so many years after his conviction. Ivan's mother found a bloodied shirt right after the murders at Ivan's brother's apartment. She took this bloodied shirt, put it into a Ziploc bag, and tucked it away. And this was back in 2000, maybe January of 2001. And when the private investigator went to her house to interview her, this was the first private investigator, went to her house to interview her. She said, here, I have this. And he refused to take it because he said, I don't want it. I don't want no part of it. It looks like chocolate milk. So Sylvia, in turn, drove from Dallas and brought me the the bloodied shirt, which right there, we could never use it because the chain of custody was broken. And the shirt was covered in blood. Well, but now, how do you think that this shirt, this bloody shirt that was at Ivan's brother's apartment, how could that have saved Ivan? I don't know, because if that shirt had James and Amy's blood on it, then the person wearing that shirt left DNA, too. So right there, the killer wore that, my my opinion, the killer wore that shirt. Because the crime scene photos were bloody, very, very bloody. The crime scene was bloody. The person who committed those murders was covered in blood. There's no, there's, every expert that I've talked to said there's no way that that person or persons was not covered in blood. That shirt was covered in blood. But if Ivan's brother had it, then wouldn't that point back to Ivan or Ivan's brother? Well, nobody ever said anything about Ivan going to his brother. Nobody uh, ever asked about his brother. That would have just been something that would have had to have been investigated. Did you go to your brother? No. Well, let's do DNA testing on this shirt. Let's see whose blood is on it and let's see whose DNA is in the collar. That would have answered questions right there. And if the victim's blood is on the shirt and John Doe's DNA is on it, then that's not Ivan Cantu's DNA. So let's find John Doe. I mean, it could have saved Ivan or it could have sealed his fate if Ivan's DNA is on that shirt. Absolutely. But that's where your faith and your belief comes in and you believe what he tells you and you believe all the other evidence that you've uncovered, that you've seen and that you've heard. But that's one of those we'll never know. And this is where the second private investigator got us because she milked me for $3,000 saying that she was getting the DNA testing done on it and she didn't do any. And this is where it gets more convoluted. Tammy says this female PI took her money and never got the shirt tested for DNA. Tammy says she called the lab the female PI said she used, and they said they never ran testing on the shirt. 
and Tammy says she never got the shirt back from the PI. I wanted to get to the bottom of this bloody shirt, so I contacted the female PI. She told me she got the shirt tested, but it didn't come back for human blood. She said it was too degraded. But she couldn't provide the name of the lab where she had it tested, so I wasn't able to confirm that. The female PI told me she sent the shirt back to Tammy and that Tammy burned the shirt. She said that another Texas-based PI told her that Tammy had burned the shirt. I followed up with the Texas-based PI and he said he didn't know anything about Tammy burning the shirt. So now this female PI couldn't tell me the name of the lab or how she knew Tammy supposedly burned the shirt. I told her, send me all my files, send me the shirt, and I received the files, and she said she mailed the shirt, but I'm denying I ever got it. I never received it. So Tammy says she never got the shirt back from the female PI, while the PI says she sent it back to Tammy. Considering that according to the female PI, the testing came back negative for human blood, it doesn't make much sense for Tammy to have burned the shirt. Why would she? Tammy's adamant that the female PI never had the shirt tested. The PI also told me that the stain didn't look like blood. She said it looked like an oil or grease stain. However, according to Tammy, well, You're I 100% mean, that was blood. I'm 100%. I've got children. I know what blood looks like. And gotcha. it wasn't just a spot here or a spot there. It was everywhere. Everywhere. And so Ivan, you don't think that Ivan knew about that shirt. Ivan wasn't like, well, maybe we shouldn't get that shirt tested or anything like that. Oh, no, he wanted it tested. But when Sylvia initially found the shirt, I don't think she wanted it tested because... She thought that that would either seal Ivan's fate or seal Eric's fate. Like, maybe Eric had something to do with it. sacrificed one son to possibly save the other. Or, or, what, yeah. or what if it's Jeff Betcher's DNA, that he went to Erickson Chain? You know, what if? Who knows? I mean, well, this is something we will never know. And here's where the story gets more bizarre. When I started this case, Tammy had sent me pictures of the bloody shirt. It was a standard white button-down shirt, and it had red stains on the front and sleeves. It certainly looked like it could have been blood. You can see pictures of the shirt on our social media and website. However, this is how Sylvia describes the shirt she found in the closet. I remember the shirt being a fine material, and it was a taupe-colored shirt. Taupe is a hard color to explain, but it's kind of a purple-brown and definitely not mistakable for white. Was it a button-down shirt? It was a button-down shirt, had a collar. Uh, when I held it up, it would have been on the right panel, lower half of the shirt. It looked as if there was a stain like chocolate milk. So now I've sent you pictures. I first got these quote unquote bloody shirt pictures from Tammy two years ago. The whole time I'm thinking, okay, this is the bloody shirt because it's a shirt that looks like it has blood stains on it. But the shirt that she took a picture of, multiple pictures of, it looks like a white button down shirt with those red stains, it looks like on the front pocket, on the sleeves. Is that the same shirt? I can tell you 100%, Matt, that it's not the shirt. 
I have no idea whose shirt that is or where it came from. So I sent the bloody shirt pictures I had to the female PI, and... I told you that the female PI, she described the shirt that she received from Tammy similar to how you did. She said it was a brown rose, like a mauve color, which I had to look up what that is, but it sounds like a taupe shirt. And she described the material similar to how you're describing it as like a silky, a fine fabric, a nice, definitely not a a standard white button down. So... I'm just no. trying to make sense of it. How do you... And, and the rose uh, comment to that, very much so. It was like a taupe rose, mauvey color. Yeah, that would describe it even better. But Tammy swears that, you know, the bloody shirt, the, what we've been talking about for years, is this white button down. She has pictures from 2007 that matches. That's, that's when all this happened. So, you know, I'm just at a loss here. I I can't figure out what's going on. So somehow, Sylvia and the female PI described the same shirt. But Tammy, who got the shirt from Sylvia and sent the shirt to the PI, is adamant that the bloody shirt is the white button-down. And she's the only one who has pictures of the shirt that are date-stamped from 2007. So how is this possible that there can be so much confusion about the bloody shirt. You got me. If Sylvia's memory is correct and the shirt was mauve with more of a chocolate milk looking stain, then that bloody white shirt didn't come from Eric's closet anyway. But then where did the bloody shirt come from that Tammy took pictures of? She says it came from Sylvia. But then why does the female PI describe the same shirt as Sylvia? You see what I'm saying? This is why I warned you in the beginning. Going down this rabbit hole only leads to more confusion. As of right now, we don't know where the shirt is, if it even still exists. We don't know if there was one shirt or two shirts. And we don't know if either of these shirts were even connected to the murders. But this article of clothing is intriguing because unlike the jeans and the socks, no shirt was ever officially found in connection with this case. According to Amy Betcher, when Ivan left to go over to James' house that night, he was wearing a black and white, no fear pullover shirt. When he came back, Amy said he was wearing a black button down shirt. That was James' shirt because she said she had seen James wearing that black button-down shirt before. But Amy never said what happened to the shirt that he came back in. That was never found. But you'll remember the jeans and socks were found in the trash can. Amy said Ivan left the original black and white No Fear shirt over at James and Amy Kitchen's house when he committed the murders. Then, when he took her back over to the house, Ivan got that shirt and his boots that he left over there and put them in a trash bag and threw the trash bag in a dumpster on the way to Club 7 that night. So according to Amy Betcher's testimony, if she was accurate about all this shirt information and Ivan did commit the murders, it would seem that neither the stained mauve silky shirt or the stained white button-down shirt would have been connected to the murders. However, if she did fabricate the story about Ivan committing the murders, and this bloody shirt did have James' blood on it, then that would have been worn by the real killer, which would at least tangentially connect back to Ivan's brother Eric, because most likely it was found in his closet. If there actually is security camera footage of Ivan or the perpetrator at a gas station covered in blood, as Dino and Frank Perez said they were told by officers, that video would prove what shirt was bloody and who was wearing it. So perhaps more will be uncovered about this bloody shirt mystery. Like I said, no shirt was ever taken into evidence and connection to the murders. Hopefully by getting this account out there, the shirt can be located 
and if testing is still possible, it will be. This Bloody Shirt saga is definitely one of the most confounding and baffling rabbit holes that have gone down during this entire investigation with the goal of just getting to the truth. And someone else wanted to get to the truth. As I was working on this episode, I got another call out of the blue, a name that first came up on Ivan's jailhouse tapes. Did Penny tell you about the, the Mark or Marty guy? Carlos raised that kid, and he's in, he's, I talked to him yesterday here. Okay. He was actually standing right up front of my cell yesterday. He's like 18, and he was telling me he just got busted with the biggest drug deal ever. That would explain Carlos doing that to James, waiting on the big deal to come in, Carlos and then Marty, and apparently something went wrong. I'm the Mark or Marty from, uh, from the jailhouse tapes. I finally worked up the nerve, man. I want to tell you what our conversation really was in Collin County that day. Next time on Cousins by Blood. We're down to the final episodes, and I know there are people out there with more information about this case. Now is the time to let me know. You can call me at 469-382-2004 or email me at cousinsbybloodpodcast at gmail.com. To see pictures of the bloody shirt, follow us on social media and check out the website cousinsbybloodpodcast.com for all pictures and case information and trial transcripts. The Prosecution, read by Catherine Ganaimi Leach. The Upstairs Neighbor, read by A.J. Penny. Frank Perez, read by Randall Strew. Mixing and Mastering, by Jody Abbott. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned. <laughs>